We are continuing in our sermon series through Hebrews chapter, uh, through Hebrews. Today we will look at Hebrews chapter 8. We live in a society that cherishes and values new and improved. One of my favorite scenes from the television show Seinfeld is when Elaine is walking down the street with some guy that she has just had dinner with and they had pizza. And they're discussing it, and they had stuffed crust pizza. And the guy was like, oh, it's, it's, it's pizza, it's stuffed crust pizza, what's the big deal? And Elaine says, it's going to be a long time before they find somewhere else to put more cheese in a pizza. <laughs> right? They, for Elaine, stuffed crust was new and improved, but at the end of the day, it's just pizza with more cheese. How many of us are targeted, either on social media or on TV, with new and improved These new shoes are going to improve your comfort. This new refrigerator is more energy efficient. This new refrigerator has more space. It's new and improved. As you guys probably know, because it's like all I talk about, I love bicycles. I love bicycles, and I'm always trying to go faster. And every single bicycle company in the world wants my attention, and they tell me, if you buy this bike, you're going to be faster. This bike is new and improved And you know what? They say it's going to make you 2% faster. I'm not very fast to begin with, so 2% of not very fast is not very fast. How new and improved is this thing? Is it really going to make that big of a difference? But every so often, right, something comes along that's so much better, it's so much improved, that it actually is new. How many of you guys remember when these came out? iPhone. Now, I remember the first cell phone my dad had, um, and it was this little brick with numbers on it, and sometimes you could make a call, sometimes you couldn't. And then in like 2007, it had to have been around there, Steve Jobs introduced the iPhone, and it was a game changer, right? It's not just something that we talk to anymore. In fact, the iPhone is so improved, it's so much better than the old cell phones, we don't even use this to make phone calls anymore. That's not primarily what we use it for, right? It's new. This is totally different. We use it for surfing the web. We use it for text messaging. It's so improved that it's new. Last week we saw that Jesus is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We looked at the nature of that priesthood, that he's unstained by sin, that he's untouchable by death, and that his priesthood supersedes the law. That his priesthood goes beyond something, goes beyond the law, and in fact is the priesthood of God's promise of blessing to his people. Jesus is a better priest. In our text today in Hebrews chapter 8, we're going to see that Jesus' priesthood is so much better, it's so much improved, that we can actually say it is new. It's not that Jesus' priesthood is 2% faster, it's not that you get. 20% more cubic storage space. It is qualitatively, meaning in its nature, it is new and it is improved. And if Jesus is a new and improved priest, then the covenant, as it says, that he is the guarantor of a better covenant, then the covenant that he brings is also new and improved. Now, our sermon today is going to be in the tradition of what you might call a theological sermon. 
If you came here today and you were hoping for 10 steps on how to have a better marriage or 10 steps on how to have better finances, you, you came to the wrong church. We never preach that sermon, right? Because we believe that's not what we think is going on here. This isn't a self-help class. But our sermon today, you might be like, well, what does this mean for me? There's not going to be a lot of that. But what the sermon is going to do is it is going to challenge us to think deeply about theology. It's going to challenge us to think deeply about God and who he is and how he interacts with his people. This is a theological sermon. But I think that's good. It's good for us to have those every so often because we want to know God more deeply. So that's what we're going to try and do here today. First thing I want us to look at is Hebrews chapter 8 verses 1 through 6-ish. The first part of six. And all that these verses are going to do, we're going to look at these quickly because they are just rehashing what we talked about last week. They're talking about the priesthood of Christ. So let's read Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 through 6a or so. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. That is, thus it is necessary for the priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since the priests who offer gifts according to the law, they serve a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent... He was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. So Jesus is a better priest. right? He's not a priest like Aaron. He's not a priest who offers the blood of bulls and goats. He's not a priest who ministers in the tabernacle or the temple day by day by day. Instead, he's a priest like who? Melchizedek, one who is without lineage, one who is without death, one who is without sin, and one who does not need to offer sacrifices for himself, for his sins. That's what these, five, these six verses are telling us. That the priest that we have, the priest after the order of Melchizedek that Psalm 110 tells us would come, he says, we have such a high priest. Okay? Psalm 110 told you that a king is coming who's also going to be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. We now have that priest. It's Jesus. Jesus is ministering for us. Now, like the priests... Uh, Aaron and his descendants, the Levitical priest, Jesus is ministering. He has offered up a gift, namely his own life, his own blood. But he's not a minister in the temple. Right? Look what he says here. He quotes a passage that comes from the book of Exodus. Now, by quoting this, this passage, he wants us to contrast Jesus' priesthood, who Jesus is, with Moses and what Moses said the priests were to do. Look in verse 5 when he says, when Moses was about to erect the tent. That means whenever Moses was about to build the tabernacle for the first time. If you were in my Exodus study, you remember this passage. Did God say, 
He did, God didn't just say, build a tabernacle. Look at what it says, and this is a direct quotation from the Old Testament. He says, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. I feel like I've really entered the depths and the bowels of fatherhood right now because my kids are playing with Legos, which means that it's dangerous in my house and means that it's a mess everywhere. But Legos, they've got these these books that tell you how to build things. And, you know, sometimes the kids will play after those or or they'll build those. But then they kind of get bored with those and they just want to make their own things. And right now, Gwen and Lucy are making houses. And they know what a house looks like. They live in one. They see it every day. They know what a kitchen looks like. They see one every day. And as they're building their Legos, they'll, they'll say, Daddy, come look at what I built. And they'll show me, and they'll, this is a house, and this is the kitchen. You scratch your head, and you're like, okay, I kind of see what you, you're building there. But it's not a real kitchen. It's not a real house. They're building it after the pattern that they've seen. They're building it after the house that they've seen. Now, they're seven and four. They're not architects. They're not like, you know, Luke is replacing the siding on my house right now. He's good. They're not like that. They're, they're putting Legos together. For their small minds, for their minds that are still growing in their understanding, they're building a house. That's what God tells us. God himself tells us that the tabernacle and the temple and the priesthood are like that. They're built after the pattern of something greater. They're built after the pattern of something better. Moses was shown the tabernacle in the skies. Moses was shown the true priesthood of Christ, and Moses comes back down almost as if with Legos and builds the tent, builds a tabernacle, builds a temple, and builds the priesthood. The point of what we're saying here is that is the Lego house the point? Or is the true house the point? Paul in Hebrews is telling us God himself said that this is built after the pattern. Aaron and Levi, they're not, they're not what is, is really important here, right? He says even that it's a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. What's the point? It's Christ. So Jesus doesn't go into the Holy of Holies in the, tab, in the temple in Jerusalem. Jesus goes before God the Father in heaven. His priesthood, it's not just like on the Day of Atonement, which was once a year, the priest could go in once a year, and Jesus is a better priest because he can go in three times a year. Jesus is qualitatively better. He doesn't just go into the Holy Holies here on earth. He goes before the presence of the Holy God, having offered up himself as a sacrifice. Jesus is a better priest. He is a better priest. And his priesthood is so much better that we can call it a new priesthood. Now, verse 6 is where it flips on its head. He's been talking for about 35 verses, 36 verses about the priesthood. All of chapter 7 is talking about the priesthood. It's talking about how Jesus is a priest, how his priesthood is better. But in chapter, in verse 6, he switches. And he says, because Christ has this better priesthood, 
because he has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent to the old priesthood, right? It's so much better. It's so much better that he also mediates a better covenant. Jesus is a better priest, so he gives us a better covenant. Jesus is a new priest, so we have a new covenant. Now, I think it's important to just define for us what a covenant is. And in the Clayton Sanderson Dictionary, which has not been published and hopefully never will, but I think it's the most helpful and basic way to grasp what a covenant is, is that a covenant is a relationship between two parties or two people that is based upon a promise. It's deeper than a contract, right? So marriage is not a contract. Our society kind of views it as one. A contract is a piece of paper that can be torn out. But a marriage is a covenant. It is when two parties, that is a husband and a wife, they have a relationship together that is based upon a promise. What is that promise? For richer, for poorer, in sickness and health, till death do us part. Right? That, marriage is a covenant. There are two people that are brought together into a relationship by a promise. Now think about the Old Testament. God makes a covenant with Abraham. What does that mean? It means that he becomes a friend to Abraham. He brings Abraham in a relationship with him. And how does he do it? By making a promise to him. I will be your God and you will be my people. How does he do it? He says that I will bless you and multiply you. And in the, 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 there's two or three, there's three different times where God reminds and renews the covenant with Abraham, where he promises him something. This covenant is a relationship that's based on a promise. Now, a covenant with God means that we are brought into a relationship with God based on a promise, based on a, I will do this, you will do this. Now, there is a covenant made at Mount Sinai. This same place where Moses saw the pattern and he comes down and he is to build the pattern. Here, God says, I'm going to bring you into the land. You're going to be fruitful. You're going to multiply in the land. It's going to be yours. You're going to conquer all your enemies. But here's what you have to do. You have to obey my law. You have to keep circumcision, right? Circumcision was a sign of the covenant. You have to... Not eat shellfish and pork and all these things that are given in Exodus and Leviticus and then again in Deuteronomy. And what do the people do? They stand there and Moses sprinkles blood on them, saying effectively, if we don't uphold our end of the covenant, if we don't do what we're supposed to do, God, then you can cut us off. Then our blood is to be spilt. That was the old covenant. It's a relationship between Israel and God, and it's based on a promise. God will bring them into the land, he will multiply them, he will keep them, and the people make a promise to God, right? We will keep your laws and your ways. But verse 7 tells us something very interesting. It says that if that first covenant, and the first covenant here is the covenant with Moses, it's the covenant that Moses received on Sinai and brought to the people, He says, if that first covenant had been faultless, that is, if it had been sufficient to do the job, 
there would have been no occasion to look for a second. You know what drives me crazy? And maybe it shouldn't, but like if somebody loses their keys and they're like, I lost my keys. Oh, I, I finally found them. It was the last place I looked. Well, yeah, you're going to keep looking for your keys after you found them? That doesn't make any sense. No, once you find your phone, you stop looking because you found what you were looking for. Once you found your keys, you stop looking. Moses said, or, 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 or Paul here says that the reason why they had to keep looking for a second covenant, the reason why they had to keep looking for a new covenant is that this one wasn't perfect. This one had not been faultless. There was something that was missing about the old covenant. Now, we could delve deeply into what is missing from the old covenant. But in just a moment, we'll, we'll, we'll see not necessarily what the old covenant was missing, but we'll see what the new covenant has. The point of what he's saying in verse 7 is that the Mosaic law was insufficient. It was not perfect to save. That's what he said in chapter 7, that the blood of bulls and goats aren't sufficient to save, but the blood of Christ is. The old covenant was not faultless, so there needed to be a new covenant. Now, in order to demonstrate this even more fully, beginning in, chapter, or beginning in verse 8, Paul is going to go in what is the longest quotation of Old Testament Scripture in the New Testament. Right? Psalm 110 that we talked about last week is the most often quoted Old Testament verse in the Bible. He's going to quote here from Jeremiah chapter 31, and this is the longest single quotation. Now that should draw us in. Why is this the longest single quotation? Well, it's because it's that important. It's that important. In verse 8, you might have in your Bible, um, like a number, if it's an ESV, you might have a number 4, or you might have some sort of note, because it says, for he finds fault with them when he says. And that note is going to put, if you look down on the bottom of your page, it says, some manuscripts say, for finding fault with it, he says to them. Now, what a, what a, uh, this is a, what we call a textual variant. What this means is that there are some manuscripts of the Bible that we have, right? Because our Bibles are translated from Greek manuscripts. Okay, we don't have the original manuscripts, but we have manuscripts after manuscripts after manuscripts that were passed down to us. Now, some of those manuscripts say, for he finds fault with them when he says. And some of them say, for finding fault with it, he says to them. And in the Greek, this is a difference of literally one letter, the letter I. Now, I think that the reading at the bottom is the correct one because our earliest manuscripts, that is the ones that are closest to the original, say altois, not altus, that, one, that I, that has that I. And here's the reason why I say that. Read, with, read it with me as if it says what it says in the textual variant at the bottom. For finding fault with it, he says to them. Look, in verse 7, he just said that the covenant had not been faultless. It had a fault. There was something in it that wasn't right. So in verse 8, 
Is he switching and saying that the problem was with the people for finding fault with them? Or is he saying that, no, there was a fault with the covenant? I think that not only the, the, the manuscript tradition that we have, but the context itself tells us that for finding fault with it, he says to them. The problem was not with the people. It's not that they didn't try hard enough. It's not that they weren't good enough. It's that the covenant was incomplete. That's what he says in verse 7, right? The first covenant had, uh, if the first covenant had, not, had, had been faultless, we wouldn't have had to look for a second. But he says that there was a fault with it, and that's why God gave us Jeremiah 31. What does Jeremiah 31 tell us? Let's read through the rest of the chapter. Finding fault with it, he says to them, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. They shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Jeremiah 31 is a prophecy. It's a prophecy just as much as Isaiah 9-6 that tells us that a child would be born. Jeremiah 31 is a prophecy just as much as Joel 2 was a prophecy that told us that one day God was going to come and pour out his spirit on people, which happened at Pentecost. Jeremiah 31 is a prophecy where God finds fault with the first covenant. What he means by finding fault with it is he is saying that it is not complete to save. It is not sufficient to save. And we know that it's not sufficient to save. It's not sufficient for this relationship between God and man so that he gives a new covenant. He gives a covenant that is so much better that it is new. So as we finish up this text this morning, I want us to look at five or six, depending on time, way, things about the nature of the new covenant. What is it about this new way in which we relate to God because of Christ as a better priest that makes it different, that makes it unique, that makes it better? The first is that the new covenant is eschatological. That's a big theological word, I know. But eschatology is simply the study of end times. It's the study of the last things. It's the study of behold the days are coming or on the day of the Lord. Whenever we see passages of scripture that talk about the days are coming or the day of the Lord that shall come, these are talking about the end times. Now, for the past 150 years in American culture, we have, we've really kind of, gotten a brain full of spaghetti noodles about eschatology. Because a lot of times we walk down the grocery store aisles and it, you know, the National Enquirer will tell us, the end of the world is coming. 
Books like The Late Great Planet Earth by Hal Lindsey are national bestsellers, and they're more concerned with telling us that whenever John saw crickets in Revelation, he didn't actually see crickets, he saw Apache helicopters. He just didn't know how to describe it. And so whenever we think about the end times, so often we think about, you know, cracking a Bible code, or we think about, about you know, is this war the war to end all wars? Is this going to be the end of the world? In some ways, eschatology in the Bible is much simpler than that, but it's also much deeper. Eschatology tells us the story of how the world and its history will unfold. And what are the two greatest events that have ever and will ever occur in the history of the world? The first is the coming of Christ. His birth, his life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection and his ascension into heaven. If you were to draw a timeline of history, it looks flat. It's all humanity, all humanity, all humanity, everything going on. And then, boom, like a lightning bolt, Christ comes. Now we know that history is continuing, continuing, continuing. And what is going to happen? Christ is going to come again. These are the two greatest eschatological markers. These are the two things that we need to worry about the end of the world more than anything. Right? Don't buy gold now. I'm not saying any of these things are bad. But what I'm saying is that to properly understand eschatology, we ought to seek to understand Christ. We ought to seek to understand what he has done and what he will do, which is he has come, he has taken on flesh, he has entered human history, and he will come again for his church. Now, how do we see that the new covenant is eschatological? From the first words of the new covenant, Behold, the days are coming. Jeremiah tells us that something is going to come that is so groundbreaking, that is so revolutionary, that everything is going to change. That is eschatology. That is eschatological. Think about how much the world and everything in it shifted whenever Christ came. Everything changed. Everything changed. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. Now, for the people in the Old Testament, this was something that they were looking towards future. But now in the New Covenant, in the New Testament, we look backwards to this. Look in verse 13. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. That means the Old Covenant is done. It's obsolete. It's no more than a paperweight. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. There was the old covenant. Christ came. There's the new covenant. The new covenant is eschatological in its nature. We also see that the new covenant is monergistic. It's monergistic. Now, I don't know how many of you guys have worked for like major corporations or or, or things like that, but a lot of times in a boardroom or in a company memo, you'll hear like these com- corporate buzzwords, and one of them is synergy, right? It's like we want synergy on our team, and that's good because what synergy means is that is, is working together, many people working together, everyone doing their part. It comes from the, the word energy, or, which is a Greek word that means work, um, action, energy, and sin, which is a uh, S-Y-N, which means together. So monergy is monos, or one, and energy, energy, work, action. The new covenant is 
one person acting and moving and doing. And that person is God. Okay? Just look through. We're going to follow. I, I, I tell my Bible study on Thursdays. We're going to follow the pronouns. Okay, in verse 8. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. This is Yahweh speaking. This is God speaking. And then look at every major clause in this passage. God says, I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel. And look in verse 10. I will make this covenant with the house of Israel. I will put my laws into their hearts and write them on their minds. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Then verse 12, I will be merciful toward their iniquities. I will remember their sins no more. In this new covenant, it is God who is doing all of the things. It is God who is making the covenant. It is God who is writing the law upon the hearts. It is God who is being merciful towards iniquities and remembering sins no more. God is the one who is doing this. And that teaches us the, second, the, two, the two next things about this covenant. The first is that this covenant is full of grace and mercy. If God is the one doing it, and he's the one showing mercy, that means that it is full of grace. Think about what it says. It says that the old covenant, who was it that broke that covenant? Was it God? No, it was the people. They had sinned against God. And what does God say? He says, hey, you broke that covenant I'm going to make a new one where your sins and your iniquities are no more remembered. You broke the covenant. But guess what? In the new covenant, that's not remembered. In the new covenant, I will remove your sins as far as the east is from the west. Because God takes the action here, because God is the one who makes the covenant, who does everything in the covenant for his people, because he is the one who makes the promise and acts on that promise, He shows grace and He shows mercy. What that means is that our sins, no matter how great they are, God forgives them. And He is the only one who can because He is ultimately the one against whom we sinned. The new covenant is a covenant that is full of grace and mercy and full of forgiveness. We also know that the new covenant is inviolable which means that you can't violate it, right? If you are in the new covenant, then you're in. If you're in the new covenant, then that covenant doesn't get broken, right? Look in verse 10. He says, or in, in verse 9, rather, he says, the new covenant, the one that's going to come, the one that has come in Christ, is not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. He says it's not like that. So what does that mean? That the new covenant is one that we continue on in. The new covenant is one where we are held up in it. We're held closely. We're held tight. Perhaps you've heard it said uh, that once saved, always saves. Or perhaps you've heard of the perseverance of the saints. That is what he is saying here. Is that if you are truly in God's covenant, if if your sins have been forgiven, if you are in Christ, then you cannot break the covenant. That is to say, Christian, if you have trusted in God for the forgiveness of sins, you can't make God so angry, you can't mess up so bad that he says, all right, you know what, I'm done with you. You've broken the covenant. The old covenant, yes, but the new covenant, no. 
the new covenant is full of Christ's mercy. And because of that, we can continue on in it by God's power. The fifth thing that I want us to see about this covenant is that the old covenant was external. The old covenant was things like, you must be circumcised, don't eat pork or shellfish, don't wear clothing with mixed fibers. Right? It was very much the external things that demonstrated that you were a member of the covenant. But the new covenant is not external. It's internal. Look at what God says he will do. He says, I will put my law into their minds and I will write my laws on their hearts. No longer is the law of God something external to those who are in the new covenant. It's internal. The law of God is not simply that you are circumcised. The law of God is that our hearts are circumcised and a circumcision not made with hands, but a circumcision of the spirit. In verse 11, he tells us that we shall not teach each one his neighbor, each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't want to have good teachers. That's why I prayed that in the pastoral prayer, that I'm thankful for good teachers. The scriptures tell us that we need to study to show ourselves approved, that if you're going to stand in the pulpit and preach, you had better well study so you don't lead God's people astray. God is not saying here that you're going to sit under a tree and you're going to figure everything out. But what he is saying is that in the new covenant, everyone who is in the new covenant will know God. Why? Because he makes it internal. It's no longer someone standing uh, out and away and above and saying, know God. Now it's internal. We all know God. Eric and I might know a few more theological words than, than, than some of you here. But that does not mean that we know God more. You can have a deep and abiding relationship with God where you know him. Because it's internal. The work of the Spirit in our hearts where he writes, our law, writes his laws into our hearts and our minds. It's not simply what we do, but it's who God has, what God has done in our hearts to raise us to new life in him. Last thing that I want us to look about at about the nature of the new covenant, is who is in the new covenant? This is an important question. Because just down the street, there's a church that we agree with on very many things. It's Westminster Presbyterian Church. They preach the gospel, and that's very good. We want to stand together with them on the gospel. But as Presbyterians, they believe something that is different than Baptists. That is to say, as Baptists, we believe something unique and distinctive. And I think that this text, this text is the reason why I'm a Baptist. Let me put it that way. You want to know why I'm a Southern Baptist? You want to know why I care? It's because of this text right here and what it tells us. Because there's part of me that would love to baptize my children. There's a part of me that would love to say, okay, if I baptize them, which is the sign of the new covenant, scriptures tell us. Circumcision was a sign of the old covenant. Baptism is a sign of the new covenant. I would love to be able to baptize them and say, hey, you know what? They're in the covenant. Because that's what our Presbyterian brothers will do and, 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 and other, uh, other closely-minded churches. But why do we not do that? It's because we believe it matters who we say is in the covenant. Now, who does this text tell us is in the covenant? One, it tells us it's those whose 
sins are forgiven. It tells us that those who are in the covenant are those who God has written his law in their minds and in their hearts. It's those who know God. And what does scripture tell us from the passage that Caleb read to us earlier, that those who have the forgiveness of sins, those who have the remission of their sins, those who God has written his law in their hearts, he's raised them to new life, it is those who have put their faith and their trust in Christ. As Baptists, we think that is very important. When someone becomes a member of our church, we are affirming that they are a member of the new covenant. We're saying, you have this relationship, this new relationship with God based on his promise, which is accomplished for you in Christ. How can we know that to be true of someone? When they have confessed their sins, whenever they have followed Christ in baptism. So who is a member of the new covenant? It is not my children. It is not my children. I pray that one day it is my children. But what I'm praying for is, not, is, is nothing less than that they will trust in Christ for the forgiveness of sins. The new covenant is for those who are in Christ. The new covenant is for those who have placed their trust and their faith in Christ. Everything that God says about the new covenant in Jeremiah 31 through 34, it cannot be said of someone who has not put their faith and their trust in Christ. It's a simple It's as simple as that. If you have questions about that and you want to talk more about why that's significant for Baptists in particular, then I invite you to come and talk to me after the service. But I hope that what that will do is that I hope that that will spur us to to ask the question, am I in the new covenant? Do I have this new covenant? Because whenever this book was written, it was written to a Jewish audience who had trusted in Christ, but they were tempted. They were tempted to say, okay, Jesus is good, but boy, the priests are over here offering sacrifices for sin. Yes, I trust in Christ and I want to raise my children in that, but if I circumcise them, then they'll be in the God's covenant people. What Paul is saying to them is that that covenant is obsolete. That covenant is fading away. Why? Because we have a new and improved Savior. We have a new and improved priest, Jesus Christ, who goes before God. He ministers for us. He is working on our behalf. He has presented his own blood as the spotless Lamb of God on our behalf. And if you want to have this relationship with God, where you know him and he knows you, where he is your God and you are his people, where your sins are forgiven, then trust in Christ. Trust in Christ. In our world of new and improved, I, I, I mean, I can't tell you, I'm not a Consumer Reports magazine. I'm not Better Homes and Gardens. It's going to tell you this blender is better than that one. But Scripture does tell it and makes it very clear to us that Christ is a better Savior. Christ is a better high priest. And he's so much better, and he is so good, in fact, that we have a new covenant. We have a new way to have a relationship with God through faith in Christ. 
in a few moments, we're going to come together and we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. What does Christ say? What does he say whenever he breaks the bread? He says, this is my body broken for you. Do this, eat in remembrance of me. And then what does he say whenever he pours the cup? This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is for you. The new covenant that we have is that Christ shed his blood to forgive us from our sins. It's not what we do. It's not what we have done or what we will do. It's what Christ has done for us. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you that Christ is a better priest. We thank you that he is a better Savior and that he brings us into this better covenant, this new way in which we have a relationship with you, a relationship which you have instituted, which you will hold, a relationship where you have forgiven us from all of our sins, a relationship where you have made, where you dwell in us. It's no longer external to us. We thank you that you have made this church your covenant people. Dear Father, I pray that as we've heard big theological words, that we won't be wowed by these these big words, but that we will be wowed by the Savior that they teach us about. Help us to understand the true depths and glories of the gospel, that Christ is ours, that we are his, and that because of what he has done, his shed blood on the cross, we will live with you for all eternity. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.